1: Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're looking at two laugh-out-loud mockumentaries that seek to capture the sights, the sounds, and the smells of music stardom. Scott, will you tell us about this week's pairing in doubly, if you don't mind?
2: (laughs) Now, Genevieve, you know very well we don't do podcasts in doubly. Nonetheless, the new feature from Saturday Night Live bred musical comedians The Lonely Island, Popstar, Never Stop, Never Stopping, is a satirical snapshot of what pop stardom looks like in 2016, but Popstar's most obvious cinematic influence draws in a much different, earlier musical era to make similar observations about ego, artistic collaboration, and stardom. In 1984, Rob Reiner's This Is Spinal Tap helped set the template for the mockumentary, a format dutifully adopted by The Lonely Island and Popstar. Both films affectionately send up the absurd excesses and fragile egos of musicians struggling against their own waning fame, and both feature soundtracks packed with memorably silly spoof songs. Nearly 30 years of musical, cinematic, and comedic history separate Spinal Tap and Popstar, both films decidedly of their respective musical eras. But mocking the foibles of the rich, famous, and oblivious, never goes out of style.
1: Yes, it's timeless, not unlike a medically accurate green skeleton t-shirt. Since it's all but impossible to talk about what pop star achieves without acknowledging its leather-pantsed forebear, we'll focus the first half of this week's discussion on This Is Spinal Tap, its comedic and musical legacies, its canny stylistic send-up of rock docs, and, inevitably, its litany of memorable quotes and gags. Then, in the second half, releasing later this week, we'll try not to spontaneously combust as we beat the drum for pop stars inspired pop silliness. So, Scott, Keith, Tasha, what do you say? Let's boogie! a fine line between stupid and clever. That's how David St. Hubbins and Nigel Tufnell assess Duke fame's offensively inoffensive album cover, but it applies just as comfortably to the whole of This Is Spinal Tap. The film settles on to that fine line between stupid and clever and rides it hard for 82 short but satisfying minutes. Posited as a portrait of a legendary British heavy metal band on their rapidly disintegrating American comeback tour in support of their new album, Smell the Glove, This Is Spinal Tap makes hay of the blinkered self-importance, sexual posturing, and fragile egos that come with stardom. Much of the film's stupid clever humor has become part of the comedy canon in the years since This Is Spinal Tap's 1984 release, so it's worth stepping back to appreciate why this particular comedy has proven so enduring and influential. Comedy needs room to breathe, and that's what director Rob Reiner and his three co-stars-slash-co-writers, Michael McKean, Christopher Guest, and Harry Shear, gave themselves when they filmed This is Spinal Tap. It's common knowledge that essentially all of the film's dialogue was improvised, hence the shared writing credits. But Reiner, who plays director Marty Bergy in the film, and the men who would don the wigs of David St. Hubbins, Nigel Tufnell, and Derek Smalls, were only able to execute that approach through thoughtful planning and arduous editing— there was no script or rehearsals, but there was an outline that laid out the complexities and character interactions of each scene in Spinal Tap. And when it was over, there was more than 50 hours of footage, which means less than 3% of what was filmed made it into This is Spinal Tap after almost two full years of editing. This was a much less common and much more insane-seeming approach in the days before digital movie cameras, and this is Spinal Tap, as well as Guest, who would use the same process throughout his subsequent directorial efforts, deserves much of the credit and some of the blame for the popularity of this approach in modern comedy filmmaking. The anything-ghost spirit of improv can produce comedy gold when wielded capably, and the profound absurdities and juvenile innuendo of Spinal Tap's most quotable lines are clearly the work of highly capable comedic minds. But the volume of film left on the cutting room floor represents everything that had to be sifted out to mine that comedy gold, and the hard work and craft that goes into rendering all that stupidity into something clever. Classic gags like the speakers that go to Eleven, Tiny Stonehenge, and Derek Small's malfunctioning pod during rock and roll creation required forethought and production design. The film's visual style, so immediately recognizable as a music documentary of a certain type and era, required careful study and appreciation of films like The Last Waltz, In the creation of tonally perfect archival footage, not to mention the entirety of Spinal Tap's discography. And, perhaps most importantly, the barbed interplay between the fire and ice of St. Hubbins and Tufnel, with Smalls as the lukewarm water between them, required the actors playing those characters to have a deep understanding of their intentions as they made their way through each scene. Having originated the members of Spinal Tap on a 1978 Rob Reiner Helm special called The TV Show, McKean, Guest, and Shearer had just that, and the trio's subsequent in-character projects and reported rivalry illustrates the extent to which they've internalized their poofy-haired alter-egos. But for all that hard work and craft, the most prevalent feature of This is Spinal Tap's humor is its looseness, the feeling that we truly are watching this group of ridiculous humans fumble their way through waning stardom together. And that stems directly from the improvisational approach. The mockumentary format as we know it depends on the openness and spontaneity of improvisational comedy for its verisimilitude, such as it is. It invites stupidity, which is honed into cleverness through craft and economy. So, everyone, let's kick this off. What aspect of This Is Spinal Tap did you find most resonant on this feeling?
2: I've seen This Is Spinal Tap many times, uh, but, but I will say that enough time... Had passed since the last time I'd seen it, that I could anticipate all the great lines and moments and still laugh at them anyway. So that was the fun I got to have watching it this time. Uh, and, you know, and there's so much to admire here the way, you know, Spinal Taps music evolves or devolves over time. You know, the Beatles esque relationship between David and Nigel and Janine, who is David's uh, Yoko Ono ish girlfriend, and sort of the hilarious attempts at stagecraft. But what got me uh, this time is just how much the style of the film. Is a well-crafted joke in itself. You know, this is Spinal Tap isn't only about satirizing the the puerile idiocy and indulgence and vanity of rock stardom, but also about satirizing the documentaries that celebrate it. So you can see, you know, you mentioned Genevieve the Last Waltz. You know, Don't Look Back. You know, there are countless other much less accomplished music docs. The look of those films is reflected so perfectly and is so part of the joke in this is Spinal Tap. And it's, and uh, and and Reiner gets, I think, the balance between that that behind the scenes material and the music performances. I think that balance is exactly right, and so reflective of the types of films that it's satirizing.
3: Yeah, I, I think uh, spinning off that, just Marty DeBergi's, you know, admiration for Spinal Tap and obvious desire to want to make a film that's sort of mythologizing them, mm-hmm. presenting them as rock cods, and the way the real world keeps undermining that at every corner <laughs> is, is just one of the, the the best running gag in the film in some ways.
0: For me, part of it is the casting. Up until now, I had, I, much like Scott, I'd seen Spinal Tap a bunch of times, but not in a long time. And revisiting it, I just kept being surprised at seeing. Dana Carvey and Billy Crystal show mm-hmm. up as mime waiters, for instance. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mime yeah, is mime money. Is <laughs> mime, mime is money. And Ed Begley Jr. as as one of the hapless drummers, <laughs> and Paul Schaefer and Fred Willard and Angelica Houston. They're just there's so many small roles that I hadn't really registered with me previously. So it you know there was there was kind of just the celebratory feeling of uh, oh oh hey look it's them. But in part, I think one of the things that stuck with me more than ever this time is just the, the interplay between characters, you know, the the degree to which they're all, they've all kind of developed a role and they're role playing with each other, and the degree to which they manage to both keep a straight face and tell an actual ongoing story that they're making up as they go, uh, just like watching the interplay between them and how you can almost see them sometimes appreciating each other's jokes, uh, it, it's just really fun.
1: It's interesting to me. That, I mean, obviously, we all know the joke about the the drummers, but i have forgotten that there are other people in the band. You know, it really is just about those three principles. And
2: Janine too. Yeah.
1: And Janine, yeah. the
2: keyboardist, is not is not terribly smart. <laughs>
3: <laughs> One, I mean, for me, a couple of things. I had, I had not seen this in a few years, and and um, kind of like where Scott was, where it's like. Oh, here comes this part. It's really funny. But I, in some ways, the, you know, the more I read about rock history and the more rock documentaries you you watch, you, it becomes not becomes less funny, but it becomes less outrageous. Like it really is just one degree elevated from, from how things really work. I mean, the concert's falling through and the promo guy's not doing their job and all. And the diminishing returns, I mean, really it's sort of the, every bad thing that could happen at once. And in some ways it's a lot, more poignant than I ever really remember it being you know maybe it's just I'm, I'm getting older but but I mean the relationship between David and Hubbins and Nigel Tufnell is, is just feels so right and so much like a dynamic and so like one of those situations where your work relationship is is is, is as intense and and, and complicated as, as a romantic relationship in some ways you know it, <laughs> it is uh i don't know if I've, I've appreciated that quite as much as I appreciate it this time
1: yeah the moment where Nigel comes back you know is there, I mean, they're doing their like free job <laughs> jazz, <laughs> so, jazz you, know, you know uh it's it's uh it's touching mm-hmm. you know yeah the, the ending is surprisingly touching while also being incredibly silly and scott speaking to your point about style there's a lot going on in the edges of this film mm-hmm. that i i wish i had had the time to give it a another viewing before this so i could like kind of take a more thorough cataloging of it but something like in that final concert, where you can still hear the PA uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> playing over them, or just like like really subtle little gags like that, that are just kind of part of the the world of the film.
3: I, I like also the way. There, every time there's like road crew people in the in the in the background like it undermines like whatever sort of sort of uh uh rock god poses they're striking because there's just these you know dudes running around doing things yeah you know? I maybe mean, it's a question of Marty not choosing his his camera angles carefully <laughs> enough but it it's 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 a nice detail well,
2: well Marty does choose the funniest moment in the film to me is. Tiny Stonehenge descending <laughs> from the rafters, uh, I, and that's all. That's all framing there because yeah, it, you, because it actually
3: drifts below the horizon because below the stage monitors you can't see. all Yeah, of it. no, but
2: you just see it coming in the background. And the thing that's, that's so great about that is that you think that it's going to come down in the first verse, but it doesn't. So they go through an entire the entire first verse, and, the, and they they're rocking out, and then they go to the second verse, and then that's when it comes down. So uh, so you're just really anticipating that joke, and when it comes and descends, it's just it's a delight.
0: Really, for me, uh, uh, one of the best gags is when the the pod refuses to open on stage. Yeah. And the cameras spend so much time, like, up close and personal, capturing that, like, from below, from, like, behind the stage, from in front of the stage. Like, they're, they're really—it's like he's got an entire team there focused on this failure that he would probably want to gloss over, but— <laughs> But obviously like watching the failure and particularly watching Harry Shearer's face as he tries to play and then as he tries to like pull off getting out of the pod, and then he tries to pull off pushing back into the pod. Like it's so much about physical comedy, so the cameras have to be really close for it. But you get the feeling of of Marty just being like, get get all the cameras over there, get all the cameras over by the fake the, the, the failing pod.
1: What struck me about the Stonehenge thing is Like, I mean, obviously, we all know the Stonehenge gag, but even if we had not seen this movie before you the viewer do know the Stonehenge is small before you see it like that is not a surprise reveal you you Mm -hmm. know that you are about to see a tiny Stonehenge and it is still because of the way it is framed and the timing it is still like surprising and delightful and that like kind of goes against a a lot of what you uh, think of how comedy should work in not having that surprise element but there's some sort of like strange alchemy you know in in how it's filmed that uh, makes it Brilliant! Oh, and, yeah, it just am uh, the Leprechauns. Yep, <laughs> uh, it's
2: in danger. Of I, guess, being, I guess
1: the Leprechauns are your your element of surprise. In, in
2: danger of being crushed <laughs> by dwarves. It's so good. Uh, the other thing too about that is just, it, it just you really are not prepared for just the the level of pomposity of that whole just mm-hmm. uh, just uh, just really how they play up the the whole story of the druids and. Uh, uh, You know, it's just this history that they make up, and then, uh, and then, and then the switch from guitar to uh, lute or whatever Mm instrument he's playing once, when, when the uh, dwarves are dancing around Stonehenge. I mean, that stuff is all—that's all gold.
3: And oh, how they danced, the little little children children of Stonehenge, Stonehenge, beneath the haunted moon, for fear. That daybreak might come too soon.
1: not for one think that the problem was that the band was down i think that the problem may have been that there was a stone age monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf all right that tended to understate the hugeness of the object i really
0: think you're just making
2: a much too big a thing out of it Making a big thing out of it would have been a good idea.
0: Well, the film gets a lot of comic mileage out of their their rock pomposity, or sometimes their, in this case, uh, maybe a little more prog pomposity. And p- part of what makes the Stonehenge thing so funny, even though you know it's coming, is just the sense that they went ahead and used it. You know, they're yeah. making <laughs> do. They... They think of themselves as, as rock gods and they're performing that song very seriously like rock gods. But even though they know they, they only have an 18 inch stone, they don't know that. They don't know that. Oh, the, they haven't seen that's it. No, right. no, no. The, yeah, the yeah.
2: manager has arranged, has okay. arranged so all then that. It, so they're, they're the, horrified the when it comes completely down yeah. to it. Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah, somehow uh, I, I, I assumed that they were in on it and they had decided to go through well, it. Well, yeah, it, because
1: right? they seem like characters who would decide to go through with it anyway. But Well, that's a good segue into a a question i had about what do you make of spinal taps musical abilities here like humor aside are they a good band can we believe that this band had success in the past
3: i think it's very plausible i mean i mean the songs are are funny but they're not incompetent in any way Mm -hmm. and uh, they're stuck in my head i don't know if they're stuck in
0: your
1: head (laughs) oh yeah i've been singing tonight (laughs) i'm gonna rock you tonight like (laughs) yeah. <laughs> the last three days. Right,
3: exactly. Yeah. And and uh and again, it, like the rest of the film, they're only one or two degrees past the point of, of, of the real world, you know. The the absurdity is there, but it's not that absurd.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I'm at. It's sort of like... I mean, there are some Spinal Tap songs I I enjoy. Uh, I liked Mm -hmm. Tonight, I'm Gonna Rock You and Rock and Roll Creation. Uh, But I don't think we have to imagine these specific songs as being huge successes so much as the types of songs the movie's parroting, you know, being hits. Right. Um, And and, uh, the one thing you know, about Spinal Tap is how much and how shamelessly they're able to adapt their sound to the trends of the day. <laughs> you know, whether it's the counterculture uh, uh, music uh, of uh, Listen to the Flower People mm-hmm. or, you know, the juvenile hairband anthems of Sex Farm and Big Bottom, you know. It's like they're, they are really... They're, they're a very derivative band. I mean, that's their shtick. Uh, well, they is, started
1: out as a skiffle band. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? What were some give of Gimme some, mm-hmm. yeah. oh,
0: some, some money. Yeah. Oh, God. That's another great song. Gimme some money super catchy. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you see them as, as following the trends of their day. I, I see them more as uh, just sort of following whatever, where, whatever direction the muse takes them. And sometimes that's in a more kiss direction, and sometimes it's a more fairport con, con, connection uh, direction. The Fairport connection, director, Fairport connection the Lovers, the Dreamers, and me. So, I mean, I, I think ultimately it's about the players, the actors who are actually playing their instruments and writing these songs and singing these songs, uh, wanting to make fun of a variety of different different genres. But within the world of the movie itself, it just kind of feels like they've got a lot of different things in their mind. I mean, one of them is composing a beautiful classical melody uh, called, like, My Love Pump. <laughs> these are They're a very diverse group with a lot of different musical interests. And what makes Spinal Tap, I guess, a little less plausible for me as a, a theoretical functional band is just the idea that they have, like, engaged all of these different aspects of, of stuff that they've been interested in over the years and that they still do have a following at all. It, it just kind of feels like every this this seems like one of those bands that every new album would like alienate everybody that they had that had previously followed them
2: well, let me counter that uh, with a couple of examples. Uh, what about Pink Floyd? Where, did, where Pink Floyd started, where Pink Floyd ended up, are very you know. An album like Piper at the Gates of Dawn is not going to be like an album like Dark Side of the Moon. Those are two completely different sounds. Or you know, early Beatles and late Beatles. I mean, different. The, I knew you're going to bring the Beatles. Uh, I, mean, I mean, the Beatles is such an influence on you know the, this uh, you know the character dynamics in the film too. So I, I think we again I have a band here that's able to uh, you know adapt its its sound to you know whatever is popular at the time. But wait,
0: I, wait. Okay, so you mean you think that the the Beatles were just following whatever was popular? No, 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 at but no, time? but I
2: but 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 I think but I think you can pl- you can say that it is possible for a band, especially a band that's hung around for as long as Spinal Tap has, to take on different forms.
3: Um, I think you can start out as a jug band and end up as the world's biggest jam band. I mean, one of the inspirations here was was uh, a British band called Status Quo. Who had a very you know summer of love type of hit with uh, pictures of Matchstick Men that ended up doing like they're still around and like doing mostly like kind of uh, not have not metal but harder rock through the seventies. I mean, yeah, they're 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 lifers who who kind of move with the times for sure. Oh, that's
0: funny. I mean, I'm familiar with pictures of Matchstick Men. I wasn't aware that the band was called Status Quo, which feels like a joke on the order of uh, Josie and the Pussycats boy band du jour. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a very self aware title for a band.
3: But again, I think it's another case where it is just a little bit more absurd than real life but not that much more absurd.
0: Oh sure. Yeah, it's not impossible. It's I think it's deliberately and kind of hilariously improbable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we're meant to laugh at the the way their music keeps changing and evolving. I, I think that you're right and that, you know, they are evoking the Beatles in a lot of ways, but I mean, I, I don't see the Beatles entirely as like as trend followers. I feel no, like they were a a, the opposite. a diverse group yeah. that were just playing around and that's a little more of what I see here.
2: Yeah, but no, this is but this is they're not as good they're not they're not a good band. <laughs> at no stage were they good <laughs> they were always bad
1: I mean their, their lyrics are silly and bad but like I don't that little bit with the mock piece like there's clearly some musical talent there and the fact that these songs are catchy you know and I think it's interesting that the group is posited as a a metal band even though you know most of the songs are more are metal in the way like Kiss is, is metal you, mm-hmm. you know But but that is a genre that Foster's virtuosos, you know, there's a lot of crossover between classical and metal for for that reason. So I don't think that's why they chose to make uh, Spinal Tap a metal band. I think that was born of the era and the fact that it, it, there's very silly looking fashions associated with it. But, you know, maybe maybe there's a little bit of that there.
0: I think there's also just something about the the self-importance of the rock bands of the era. I think that... One of the things we're, just, we're supposed to get out of these characters is, you know, even if they are, like, subconsciously following trends, they never talk about it within the movie. Like, there's never a point where they say, we're losing fans. We need to reinvent ourselves. We need to, like, follow the trends. We need to do what's popular right now. They're, they always seem to be doing just kind of, like, what they feel. And that gives them a certain weird authenticity, even as they're being ridiculous
2: they do have to though because things go so poorly they do have to adjust on the fly you know they do have to try to figure out you know how to put an album out how to keep a tour going that's fa- fall you know when all, while all these things are falling apart
1: well that uh, well that plays into a question i had about the music industry which we've sort of touched on a little bit but you know This movie is set in 1982 and music uh, has changed a lot, not just the content, but the business thereof. And, you know, the music industry today is quite far removed from the industry that Spinal Tap is uh, struggling through in this film. So how do those elements parodying the music industry play to you? Do they seem outdated or is there a more essential truth there?
3: It's almost like the The future history of of the music industry is playing out in the film too, where it starts with this this big budgets, this lavish party, and and all this like handshakes of of the executives, and they have you know the full power of corporate resources behind them, and it kind of ends up with like the way musicians are now in a way, where it's just like depending on on a fervent fan base to support you and hoping for dumb luck and making all your money on the road and not from albums. You know, it, it is it's, it's prophetic, I think.
0: And at the same time, to the fact that there's no there's no digital downloads, there's no immediate feedback, there's no social media, there's no way for them to engage with their fans, so there's no way for them to really know how popular they are or aren't until they show up to these gigs and see how, how pathetic they are or how unattended they are. So much of the arc of the, the story is built around this one album that's coming out, and for them, the event isn't they're dropping a single, the event isn't they're dropping title overnight, it's... This album is coming out and it's something they've been waiting for a long time for. And then when they actually get the art for it, they're horrified, but they're still hoping it's going to boost sales. It's so album focused and that feels very dated in a way but the whole idea around the marketing of the album seems very current you know they they have an idea in their heads the the company has refused them because it's going to be controversial they have no control they have no input they're getting all of these decisions passed down to them from on high that they have no control over like that all seems very current to me
3: and the fact that Kmart and Sears won't stock them <laughs> <laughs> yeah for also sure. couldn't be more current
1: <laughs> so, I actually think that the the extent to which they are kind of kept in the dark about what's going on with with album sales and and the, the extent to which their handlers kind of manage them that feels a, a little more outdated to me because kind of, of social media and instant feedback that artists get nowadays and that there's not that divide between artist and fan or artist and consumer the way that there there was so the a- aspects of like their manager and bobby trying to di- divert their attention from how badly they're doing like it, it seems unlikely to me that you'd be able to do that with a modern band in the modern music industry
0: I kind of like kind of imagining like what their social media presence is like. Like, <laughs> i see nigel tufnell is the kind of person that would be on twitter like every five minutes like warren ellis just like here's a picture of my my amp that goes
1: to 11 <laughs> which of them tweets in all caps you know one of them does.
0: <laughs> well i don't think the other two would be like nearly as social media focused like david at hubbins i could see like still hanging around on myspace and like being annoyed because nobody was responding to his posts and like derek just seems like he would have missed the the social media thing entirely and be like talking to a tin can somewhere and asking how it gets to the twitters he, he really likes peach <laughs> well then,
2: then i think there would be like a there would be like a parody twitter account just for the guitar that has all the sustain It'd just be all the just be nothing but sustain coming from this uh, twitter account there, uh, would be,
0: there would definitely be a twitter account that it would just be like spinal taps exploded drummer,
2: <laughs> yeah um so but I mean, I think we we get a glimpse which we'll talk about later in in pop of of just how um mm-hmm. that information is immediately available, he knows instantly that his album is not uh, a success um whereas uh whereas you do have uh you know you're much slower to release the album to understand how it's performing, to reach out to fans to come to say uh you know uh, a signing a signing <laughs> kick my ass well, just, just the idea just the idea of uh, but, uh, bands
1: do like a signing a record signing being a, a big thing like I mean bands still do signings they In- usually store, like at, performances at... Right? yeah but it's it's not a thing anymore really when was the last time you got into a record store <laughs> that would have an album signing the only time I've seen when well, was album... the last time you went to a record store exactly I you were going to stop exactly. there exactly I went
3: to a record store today guys
1: what <laughs> who are you I mean, technically, we're recording in a record store, you guys. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> we are.
2: Uh, um, well, and back in the day, we shared, uh, we, we, promoting our, uh, the A.V. Club book, uh, The Tenacity of the Cockroach. We uh, had an event with Rhett Miller that's true we did. that was kind of exciting yeah. 99% exciting. of people were there to see Rhett Miller and, and uh, 1% were there to see us
1: but I feel like most music or most signings I see nowadays are like part of something bigger like at a music festival yeah. or
0: yeah. yeah they're in town for a concert and then like they go to a store during the day and again that was an in-store performance as opposed to him sitting behind a desk like waiting for people to come up with the album which the, like the Spinal Tap thing there's not really a sense that they're performing they're just kind of slouching there like they would in the studio like waiting for people to come up to them
1: all right so before we wrap i want to talk a little about the female characters in this film specifically june chadwick's yoko figure janine who we've talked about a little bit and fran Drescher's bobby uh, do you think that they exist in this film to make a specific point about women in the music industry, or are these just sort of expected character types or archetypes in the rock and roll narrative that we're seeing here?
3: Can't can't both be true, you know? <laughs> in, in, so, in some ways, I, I think they they are sort of the expected types, but they also make a point about women in the, in the music industry at this time. And and, and Janine, you know, is kind of I don't know. It's in some ways it's kind of kind of poignant where where this is probably. The easiest way to get a connection, it, it, to, to be in the music industry as a woman at this point, if you weren't a super talented singer songwriter or something, would be to to you know kind of marry or or not marry or whatever the relationship <laughs> to <date>. is, right? <laughs> to a, a band member like this and kind of um, you know assume control that way.
1: Well, I mean, Bobby's in the music industry though. True. You know, that's true. You know, it's it's interesting to me that they are both figures who are exerting control over the band in mm-hmm. some way or another. Only Bobby one kind of, of one of them knows what she's doing. Though. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Bobby feels like the adult and Janine feels like the poser. But I mean, Janine is so heavily based on Yoko Ono mm. without the it seems without the musical pretension. It sort
3: seems... of, though I mean she seems like kind of a seventies, early eighties hippy dippy um astrology fan, you know, more more than Yoko. I mean, Yoko Ono was an established avant garde artist. Um with, you know, with, with a career of her own.
0: Yeah, uh, exactly. She had her own musical pretensions. She had her own musical talent. And she was trying to bring them into uh, another environment where they questionably belonged. Mm-hmm. Whereas Janine doesn't seem to want to sing. She wants to manage. Like, she wants to... She, she plays s- tambourine.
2: <laughs> she does in the jazz in, in the jazz odyssey version of. <laughs> you Oz need the tambourine. <laughs> Spinal well, Tap Mock Two. <laughs> they
0: need more people on stage. But it kind of seems like part of why she wants to be there is like she. I think she actually does want to help. You know, she wants to help in a very like controlling and insertive way, and she's completely oblivious to or indifferent to the chaos that she causes in the band and with the relationships. I mean, I find her to be just a very both an unpleasant character and an anti-comedy character that makes the film a little difficult in some ways because so much of it is about the the pomposity and the humor that comes from the pomposity of these characters taking themselves very seriously but everything related to her is just so dour you know the way that the characters react to her the way she she forces herself into the situation the way she rambles on like nobody we know uh <laughs> i i just i find her so unpleasant in a completely non-humorous way i feel like she drags the movie down but the cowboy hat stasha cowboy <laughs> hats <laughs> well i know and the hair like she looks like she just stepped off the the set of xanadu
3: yeah but i think it works though because because i mean that is the drama in this film and it comes from between david and nigel and, and the strain on their relationship and and the role that she plays in that as as well and and like You can kind of see both sides that you're rooting for the band to, I don't know if you're rooting for the band, but you don't want the band to fall apart because they're funny and you don't want David to be unhappy, but, but she's clearly someone who has no business. And, you know, her, her opinion is, is not an opinion that would be taken seriously if she weren't dating the lead singer.
0: Though
2: she, I would, I would object to say that she doesn't bring the comedy because she is the one who says doubly. She is the one who is <laughs> and and, and, also, and also and also she is and, she, and also she is bringing them she she is introducing all of the uh uh character concepts the lion and the uh and what are the what are some of the other what are the other two
0: <laughs> well one of them's a, a ball I think because it's sort of a Minotauri thing right but it's yeah
2: yeah. It's tourist, yeah. Um, there's, but, but, there's, yeah but yeah I, I think course, she's yeah. but I do think that in terms of the drama of the film it clarifies the conflict between Nigel and and David so uh, I so I suppose that is the ends up being the role she sure. plays.
0: sure I just I find it uninteresting it's because it's so one note I hit on the piano over and over and over it's just she's intrusive and she's in the way and she's full of herself and she makes everybody unhappy whereas like all of the stuff all of the tension in the band that's based around the fact that the band is slowly failing there's just a lot more variety there you know there's a lot more variety in how the characters react to individual scenes there's a lot more variety in in those individual scenes exactly like what goes wrong and and how the band is disintegrating. I mean, the thing with the pods is hilarious. The thing with the band playing at the Air Force Base is hilarious. There's so much humor there. I, I mostly I just don't see why she's there. I well, like she I sets up
2: the airport. Uh, she, well, yeah, because g- she books gig. up into it. But
0: <laughs> I, I mean, the thing with the the band costumes and the thing with the doubly, it's just it's all about laughing at her. And I feel like there's relatively little, like when we're laughing at Nigel and his uh, amps that go to 11 or his his
1: anatomically correct (laughs) green t-shirt. Medically
0: correct. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, I feel like we're laughing a little more with the improvisers because they're doing stuff that's funny and clever. I just don't see her doing stuff that's funny and clever. And I feel like it's it's almost the opposite with Bobby. Like Bobby is a fun character in part because she's this like very waspish disapproving character who's still very on the ball and is trying to corral these like – you know, crazy shenanigan enabling rock stars in ways that just let them behave bigger and better and funnier. For me, it's just, it's the difference between a character that enhances the comedy and a character that keeps repressing the comedy.
1: I was looking at some reviews of, this is Spinal Tap while I was preparing for this, and I uh, was reading uh, Roger Ebert's from back in the day. And he had an interpretation of David and Nigel. Uh, their relationship is romantic. Uh, I'll, I'll read a quick here. Uh, Nigel Tufnell, who longs for St. Hubbins with big, wet, spaniel eyes. When Nigel learns that David's girlfriend, Janine Pettibone, is flying over from England to join the tour, his heart sinks. His crush on David is obvious to everyone except, of course, David. And that's a really interesting reading that I never got from the film, and I'm wa- and I'm wondering if any of you ever got that. No, not really. No. I mean, it feels it feels like <laughs> if
3: it's actually sexual, it'd be deeply, deeply repressed. Yeah. Um, but there's definitely it's you know, like it's one of those situations where it is kind of like a marriage, though. Yeah. So yeah. the third Person in their marriage.
0: I'm already seeing the hashtag Give Nigel Tufnell a boyfriend. <laughs> 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 I I think that's a really interesting interpretation, but no, it never occurred to me. I mean, they've been friends since they were kids, and I think. I think they're all emotionally repressed and they're also just kind of emotionally regressive. And what we're seeing here just feels so much like that moment in high school, you know, when the 14 year old kid who's been your friend since he was seven gets his first girlfriend and you don't have one yet and you sulk about it. Like that's the emotional level that I see this operating at. Like I didn't particularly see it as a gay thing, but I'm really, really curious whether like listeners have in general, like whether that's something... You know, because we've we've heard from other people who've seen like plausible gay arcs in films because they're looking for them and they want them to be there. I wonder if this is one of them.
1: Uh, we'll wrap up in a moment, but we can't end without this favorite lines slash gags. Everyone, we've named quite a few, but I, I think there's uh-huh. still a few left. You really can't
0: dust for vomit.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think the 2 ordered review of Shark Sandwich. <laughs> to be, to be out there for yeah, that whole that whole <laughs> sequence. I mean, I I. I uh, I, you know, obviously, I, I talked about Stonehenge being lowered from the rafters. Um, I like the scene where the band uh, takes a look at their all-black album cover. None more black, <laughs> and uh, you know it, the fate of the drummers. I think is a terrific running joke. Uh, the whole review scene is tr- is great. Uh, in, in basically any scene with Nigel Tufnell. Uh, I, I love the guita- uh, the introduction of the guitars with sustained, and then the guitar that can't even be touched, touched or looked at. Uh, I like the amp that goes to eleven. Uh, I love him uh, composing that beautiful mock suite called uh, "Lick My Love Pump." And uh, and and his anatomically correct T-shirt, I also love how he's chewing gum uh, mm. throughout most of the, of the movie. So uh, he's kind Puts of the MVP. Though, though, though I, I though I I think Harry Scherer has some really great moments too. I, I like him going through the metal detector. That that whole scene <laughs> is fantastic.
1: Derek's characterization of himself as lukewarm water is maybe my favorite thing in the entire movie and i I already name checked it earlier but it's fire and ice (laughs) and i'm the lukewarm water
0: i i'm with you I, i do think that christopher guest is kind of the mvp of the film and like i also have to give a shout out to the whole thing where he's talking about like what else he would do with his life if he wasn't in the band and he 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 talks about being being a haberdasher or something, like that's in a chapeau shop or something. You know, what size do you wear, sir? And then you answer me. (laughs) What are the hours? Like that whole bit is just so absurd and so straight-faced in a way that consistently went through Christopher Guest comedies. That's like, that is the the heart of the Christopher Guest comic humor right there, is the ability to spiral a bit out and make it bigger and bigger without ever changing facial expression.
2: Uh, I wanted to address that that point, which relates to a point that you made in the the keynote about uh, improvisation and about the looseness of the film. I think one of the things that they do really well, McKean, Guest, and Sheer that other Improvisers don't that we see, you know, that I mean, because improvise improvisational style is very common now. Is that I, I I do think they are much more focused. There's a discipline to the improv that doesn't allow it to trail off into too much randomness, though. There is some of that. There is some absurdity and that in some unexpected things uh, in it. But I think you know the jokes are a little more laser focused, even though it does have that pleasing looseness and realness. I mean, that's a, that's kind of a tough thing. To to do and they do it really well. Do we have any favorite like song lyrics? Yeah, I was going to yeah. say we we hardly we so talk that. We about Mud flaps talk my about flaps, my 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 fl- got him.
0: how can i leave this behind <laughs> yeah
2: I, I, mine's also from from big bottom i like i like uh i think i think i love her each weekday each velvety cheek day has to be my favorite from that song uh, it's just a tease
3: but i want to hear more of saucy jack i want to i want to hear, <laughs> hear the whole saucy jack musical which uh seems to have been gestating for for quite quite some time in, mm-hmm. in the minds of spital tap
0: there's also, like, Sex Farm da- isn't, like, the catchiest of their songs here, and, like, the lyrics are relatively straightforward for a song about a sex farm, but the, <laughs> the juxtaposition of what they're doing and where they're doing it is, I, for me, just such a hilarious, hilarious <laughs> That's thing. the
1: song, that's at the airport hangar. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it and move on to my favorite part of the show where we get to hear from you, the listeners. Yes, it's feedback time. And today we're highlighting a couple of the great letters we got in response to our L.A. Confidential Nice Guys double feature. Keith, you want to kick us off?
3: I certainly will. A listener named JP wrote in to share a somewhat chilling take on Guy Pierce's character in L.A. Confidential. JP writes, one thing that's always struck me about Exley and the film's police culture is what he has to do to gain their approval, acceptance, and admiration. After Exley blows apart the African-American escapee in the elevator, we cut from Exley's blood specked reaction shot to the interior of the police station, where his formerly hostile co-workers serenaded him with warm applause. It's always played to me like a rite of passage or fraternal initiation. Now that he's killed, they finally see him as a real cop and a real man— A far cry from the beginning when they lock him in a cell for trying to prevent violence. Is it at this point that most audience members start to warm up to Exley as well? Is the mediator between head and hands the heart, or is it the gun?
0: I don't think this is where we warm up to, actually. For me, it's it's a feeling that this is where he, he is in danger of losing himself. This is where he starts defining who he is. And that, that moment where he fires the gun into the elevator and he's splattered with blood and he's looking in the elevator at what he's done, I mean, it's kind of a, a make it or break it moment. It's a come to Jesus moment where he has to decide, is this the kind of cop I want to be? He's been told, basically, by James Cromwell's character that, Like being a a good and useful cop on the force consists of being able to frame people, fake evidence, beat people up, you know, all of these things. And in that moment, he's like looking into the abyss and deciding, am I going to be that kind of cop? And the police force that accepts him for what he did is a corrupt and terrible police force. So we have, to, we have to question, you know, do we want him to go in this direction? Yeah, he's, he's finally gaining approval, but he's gaining the approval of terrible people.
3: I, I, I'm not sure about the audience reaction thing, but I'll buy the rest of this letter, though. It, is, it, is, it does play like a rite of passage. It does feel like like uh, A baptism we're, we're, by blood. Yeah, exactly.
2: I, do, I like the idea, though, of the audience members warming up to him at a— point where it may not be he may not be doing the right thing sure that's a that's a provocative idea um and i'm not sure how i feel about it
0: oh i mean i'm certainly not saying it's an uninteresting point i, I think it's a really interesting point but just speaking for myself i in that moment where he shoots the guy in the elevator i wasn't thinking go xley like, <laughs> he's people-
2: more human
1: all right. Well, speaking of things that are interesting, a listener named Meg had That's another solid. queen of the Segway here. Uh, a listener named Meg had another interesting character interpretation. This one for LA Confidential's leading lady. Tasha, would you please share? Sure.
0: Meg wrote in to respond to our comments about Kim Basinger's Lynn not being cut or given plastic surgery to look more like Veronica Lake. She writes, "For me, it was less about Lynn not being corrupted by LA and more about her personal character and that idea of a code." Lynn seems like a character who's defined by being very realistic about exactly who she is and isn't. She's completely blunt about what she does, lays out the way Pierce Patchett treats her, why many of the women she works with are there, that she's just friendly with Sue Lefferts, but they weren't friends, etc. So many of her lines are just that kind of super direct, plain-spoken realness, starting with her very first line to Bud. So it seems very in keeping with her personality that she would dye her hair, hair grows back, but she would draw the line of plastic surgery because we're not talking about women getting plastic surgery to have a quote unquote good nose, but getting plastic surgery to look like someone else, even someone who, as you pointed out, was nearing the end of her own relevance. So while I don't think you can ever completely get away from the idea that Lynn's beauty is better or more honest because she was born with it, it's also a really fitting choice for Lynn. She'll dye her hair to look like Veronica Lake to make money, but she's not permanently altering her facial features. Cosmetic changes are fine, but she's not getting under the skin. She knows who she is, and she knows where she draws the line to not lose sight of that. Plus, she's planning for a future. She's not the type to mess around with her face for a short-term goal of looking a bit more like a currently popular movie star. That, for me, kept it from being just a way for Lynn to reassure the audience about Lynn's beauty being real and made it more about Lynn herself.
1: I really like that interpretation a lot. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> I like it, and I
0: don't because I mean I think it's a really astute observation about what the movie is deliberately saying about Lynn. But uh, <laughs> Keith and I just both uh, saw Nicholas Winding reference <laughs> Neon Demon today, and there's a big And yet, we're
3: still able to talk.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, only barely. I had to be mopped up off uh, off the floor earlier for this podcast, but there's a an interlude in that where a. Uh, really reprehensible character talks about how beauty is our our purest and most important currency. And he makes it very clear that the difference between a beautiful woman who is naturally beautiful and a beautiful woman who has had surgery is monumental and can't be, it can't be negotiated. Essentially. He feels that any surgically, surgically created or enhanced beauty is automatically like fake and artificial no matter what it looks like and that's sort of what i feel here is that i mean if if this letter is true if all of this interpretation is intended by the movie then we're basically saying that someone who is born with this face is just inherently realer and more valuable and more significant and more important than somebody who had the surgery and i think that i think that the letter's accurate i think that the
1: movie does hold those values i just think it's a a sort of a slippery slope to validate the ways in which women want to make themselves beautiful and, First of all, I'm not really that excited for Neon Demon, and hearing you talk about that makes me even <laughs> less excited because, it's, like, it's, I, I hate I hate that interpretation of plastic surgery.
3: In many, many ways, this movie is not for you.
1: Do yeah. You? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for confirming what I what I already suspected. So, I, I don't like the idea of saying that like one form of altering your appearance is better or worse than the other, but I think the idea of permanency. Is important in the idea of doing something that you can't change back. And I say this as someone who dyes my hair constantly, you know, and, and wears makeup and all right that. Now. Yeah, exactly. But you know, there's something about changing your actual facial structure that is a level beyond that, you know. And it it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it does reflect a certain uh, relationship with yourself and your sense of self. And I think this listener's. Interpretation of Lynn kind of bears that out
0: yeah, but it 's not just her sense of self it 's her salability, like the difference between her and the other women is that they 're changing themselves in order to better market themselves, and the implication is unless they they remake themselves to look like these movie stars, they are not a saleable product, but she is somehow more authentic because she she comes to the table already as a saleable product, and I, I find that a very queasy thing which, again, I think is, as this letter says, like part of the movie and is implied by the movie. But it's a really skewed value system, which I guess is part of the point, you know, that Hollywood has a skewed value system that, you know, the, the, the entire star system is a skewed value system i'm not sure that the movie critiques it as much as it necessarily should
1: all right well last but not least a listener named dylan wrote to us about the nice guys and a specific character trait we and perhaps the film glossed over scott
2: uh, sure uh, dylan writes one thing about the nice guys that puzzled me was the way holland march's drinking and possible alcoholism were handled His introduction sees him waking up in a bathtub with water, wearing a suit, presumably after passing out there the night before. He is chastised comically by Jackson Healy for his drinking at a party when they are supposed to be working, and his daughter drives him around because of his heavy drinking. So clearly, it's established he has a drinking problem. What I found odd and almost troubling was the way it was handled overall. For the most part, it's played for comic effect, but there are a few scenes where it's handled with much more gravity, most notably when his daughter yells at him and calls him out on it. I was in a lot of ways waiting for this moment, so it felt jarring when it was nearly immediately dropped for a comic moment of Holland successfully calling back Jackson with a hint that he knows important information. Uh, I was curious to know your thoughts on this subject. What are our thoughts on this subject? I, I did, did it, register, it didn't register that strongly to me, the, uh, the uh, that aspect, aspect of it, but I guess it probably should have. No, and Jackson
3: throughout the movie waves away drinks. He's obviously someone who's into work on his sobriety and the, end the last scene he's drunk. I, th- I think it's, just a, it's, it's a bit of black comedy. It's a it's dark joke. I don't think it takes away from the seriousness of, of alcoholism throughout the rest of the movie. It just kind of gets, a, you know, the, the punctuation mark is not what you're expecting and, it, and it's a little grim.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's also just an occupational hazard of this, of whatever, of this type of work. I mean, just a, it's another feature of this of this genre that is being, uh, you know, put in there. But but I guess maybe um, maybe it is addressed a little more deeply than I thought.
0: I'm, I mean, the letter seems to be saying the problem is that it isn't addressed.
2: Seriously. No, but 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 a lot of the things that he, uh, the letter writer is pointing out um, did not occur to me watching it no. the first
0: time. I mean, for me, the it, the way it played in the movie was just very cheap. The fact that he was an alcoholic, I just took as like further symbol of his his deep and abiding grief over his wife, the failures that you know that run throughout his life. You know, he's basically a very unethical man who is not doing enough to take care of his daughter, who is his responsibility. And it's all a mark of like the heavy weight that grief has on him. But then in the end, it's kind of played for a cheap joke where he doesn't get drunk and it's kind of meant to be a redeeming character arc, but it it felt very unearned to me. But can you imagine Shane
2: Black ever playing something like that straight though? (laughs) Uh, Like I I wouldn't like to have to have some kind of redemptive aspect of the film involving Um, his alcohol use would seem really, really off for me uh, in a Shane Black movie.
1: It also just strikes me maybe as a little bit of the era, too, like the 70s just as kind of having a looser interpretation of what alcoholism is and the necessity for treating it, or at least, you know, the version of the 70s we're seeing here. Sure. Sure. All right. Well, as always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll bring Popstar to the stage to see how it builds on the precedent set by Spinal Tap. You'll also get to hear this.
0: It's hilarious, like Andy Samberg, like wrinkled schnauzer face that he does. <laughs> Look
1: for that later this week. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at Facebook.com slash Next Picture Show and follow us on Twitter at Next Picture Pod. So you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be in the studio praying to St. Hubbins, the patron saint of quality footwear.